This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Friday the 27th of October. I'm Sabra Lane, coming to you from Gadigal land in Sydney. Israel's carried out what it's calling a targeted raid into Gaza using tanks, with troops still preparing for the ground offensive. Its aerial assault of the territory continues. Hamas says 50 hostages have been killed. In Tel Aviv, families of the captives have held a rally voicing anger at the Israeli government's inability to free their relatives from captivity. Middle East correspondent Alison Horn is in Ashdod in southern Israel. There's been a small ground incursion into the northern parts of Gaza. So what it looks like physically is a number of armoured vehicles that have crossed over the fortified border into Gaza, so through the fence. And the military says that those tanks and infantry struck a number of terrorist cells, infrastructure and anti-tank missile launch posts. And it's certainly the biggest ground incursion into the north area of Gaza in this current war. And I think what it really signifies is that Israel is laying the groundwork for what will be a bigger ground offensive there because when they go in from this vision that we've seen, they're taking their bulldozers and clearing parts of the land in northern Gaza and a lot of that area does have farmland. So these big dozers are making roads and making space for their big machinery and their big armoured vehicles to get in there. But it's also to allow the military to gather intelligence and information about the layout of the land and what they may encounter there whenever they do launch this wider ground offensive. Just on the hostages, Hamas says dozens of them have been killed at the same time that families of those being held hostage say that they're angry, they are angry at the Israeli government that they can't get their friends and family home. Yes, in the last few hours, they've seen a really passionate march through the streets of Tel Aviv with hundreds of the family members of these hostages that have been taken by Hamas into Gaza. And one of the prevailing messages that they were saying is that they are not satisfied with the response of the Israeli government and they want more information from the cabinet about how exactly those Israeli leaders are planning to try to get their family members out. There are still, Israel says, 220-odd people that are being held captive there by Hamas in Gaza after they were taken on October 7, and they demand the cabinet speak to them tonight to tell them how they plan to get their loved ones back. These people today have given a press conference saying they are told to be patient, be patient. They've said they are sick of being patient. They want more answers. We know behind the scenes of this, there is intense negotiation happening between Qatar, who is sort of leading a lot of the talks and the mediation about trying to get these hostages out. But as you just mentioned, Hamas has also released a statement saying that 
50 hostages have been killed as a result of Israeli airstrikes. They didn't give any more information. And Sabra, I should note that it is impossible for us to independently verify what Hamas is saying, but that is the statement they've released. International pressure is also growing on Israel to allow more aid into Gaza. Is there any sign of a shift in Benjamin Netanyahu's attitude on this? Not at the moment. Uh, the main point of concern, Sabri, is the issue of fuel, the fuel that keeps the generators at the hospitals going. We know that there are a number of hospitals that have simply run out of fuel and their generators are no longer working and they've shut and a number of medical facilities that have also closed. And we're talking about hospitals that were already so significantly over capacity at Shifa Hospital, which is the main hospital in Gaza. They have a capacity of about about uh, 700 people. They're now at about 5,000 to give you an idea of how overstretched they are. And UN agencies say the next 24 hours are critical in trying to get fuel to these medical facilities so they can literally keep the lights on to literally keep operating. Israel says it will not be wavering on this issue because it says if it allows fuel to go through the Rafa crossing, which is the border crossing um, with Egypt and Gaza, that that fuel will be intercepted and taken by Hamas. So there is no movement, but the UN is warning that the uh, health system there is on the verge of collapse. In fact, the Ministry of Health, which is run by Hamas, has actually said that it has already collapsed and people are now dying who could have been saved. Middle East correspondent Alison Horn. The Prime Minister has lobbied the new Speaker of the United States House of Representatives for help in cementing the AUKUS partnership on delivering nuclear-powered submarines. Anthony Albanese used the final day of his visit to the US to hold a series of meetings on Capitol Hill. North America correspondent Jade McMillan joined me earlier from Washington. Jade, what reception did Mr Albanese receive? Well, as we've talked about this week, Sabra, the Prime Minister wasn't able to address a joint session of Congress because the House of Representatives was at a standstill while it tried to elect a new Speaker. Uh, while the Prime Minister didn't get that chance to directly address all of the members of Congress who will decide on the passage of legislation needed to progress Australia's acquisition of nuclear-powered submarines, he was given time today with some of them. Uh, he sat down with members of what's known as the Friends of Australia caucus and also leaders of the House and Senate committees on armed services and foreign affairs, some of whom had previously expressed concerns about the United States' capacity to sell Australia its first few Virginia-class subs while it's not meeting its own production targets. Mr Albanese also met with the new Speaker, Republican Mike Johnson, uh, who was only elected yesterday, more than three weeks after Kevin McCarthy was kicked out of the job, and the Prime Minister raised the AUKUS deal with him. He said he hoped that that legislation would be passed by the end of this year. Uh, it's a, a sentiment he reinforced at a lunch at the State Department later on in the day, uh, a function hosted by Vice President Kamala Harris and Secretary of State Antony Blinken. He said that he was confident in the level of bipartisan support on Capitol Hill. This is an unprecedented level of partnership conceived for a time of unprecedented challenge. This technology offers Australia a new level of deterrence and a new capacity to contribute 
to the stability of our region and the security of our partners. For Australia, the rationale for AUKUS is straightforward. We want to contribute to strategic equilibrium in the Indo-Pacific. We're not looking for conflict, we are seeking to prevent it. Jade, so what's next for the Prime Minister? Well, it's only about a week before he's headed overseas again, this time to China. He's expected to become the first Australian Prime Minister to visit the country since 2016. And it comes as the federal government continues to improve its relationship with China after that lengthy period of frostiness, which did lead to a series of trade barriers being imposed on Australian exporters. Australia's ties to Beijing were also a focus of this visit. In the United States, President Joe Biden yesterday used the phrase trust but verify when he was asked whether the Chinese government could be trusted. Mr Albanese told that same State Department function today that Australia was clear-eyed about its relationship. He uh, reinforced his strategy of cooperate where we can, disagree where we must, and he said that that approach would carry through on this upcoming visit. North America correspondent Jade McMillan. Homelessness in Australia could end in 10 years, according to the peak group representing those without a roof over their heads. It's made a number of bold ideas about how to achieve it. They're contained in a submission to the federal government's housing and homelessness plan. There are warnings the problem will just get worse until there's a complete change in tackling it. Kathleen Ferguson reports. Faith was juggling study and work just to put a roof over her head. But it wasn't enough for the 19-year-old. An affordable home in Brisbane was still out of reach. It was very scary. Um, It was a lot to process at once. Well, I didn't know where I was going to go next or... Because I was basically couch um, surfing. The civil engineering student couch surfed for several months until she sought help from a youth service. I think we all know, like, the houses here are very pricey at the moment. Kind of rent. And for me too, because not getting that much hours at work, obviously, and then balancing that with school. Um, it was, yeah, it was too much just for my mental health too. It was a bit, a lot. Homelessness Australia believes in a decade's time, people won't have to go through what Faith did if the federal government makes bold reforms. In its submission to the Commonwealth's Housing and Homelessness Plan, it's asking for 50,000 new social and affordable homes a year and an expansion of rental assistance. Kate Colvin is the organisation's CEO. So we don't want a national housing and homelessness plan that's just tinkering around the edges. We want a plan that um, sets the course to fix the housing crisis and to end homelessness. She says housing is shaping up to be Australia's biggest issue, with the crisis worsening. There's not enough housing that people can afford. There's too much rent stress in the private market and we've got an epidemic of child abuse and family violence that's driving people into homelessness. And she points to clear changes which could help. Currently, if you're um, on a low-waged income and don't have children, um, you might be paying 60 70% of your income in rent, but you can't get rent assistance because it's tied to having an income support payment. And so by changing that eligibility, that would make a huge difference. Experts agree the 10-year time frame is feasible if governments make strong policy choices. Nicole Gurren is a professor in urban planning and policy at the University of Sydney. I think Australia's rising housing problems and homelessness problems 
reflective of policy neglect. She says Australia needs to overhaul the housing system. We look to where other countries are at in terms of addressing their housing issues. We know we need a systemic change in Australia and that means much more than, you know, 2 to 3% of new housing supply being funded and delivered by in the public sector in the form of social housing. And for people like Faith... The feeling of having somewhere safe to go to at the end of the day is hard to deny. It's a big relief and I don't have to worry about a lot of things. The federal government's $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund promises to build 30,000 new and affordable social homes in the fund's first five years. The government committed to an additional $1 billion to be spent on public and community housing in return for the Greens dropping demands for nationwide rent freezes. Kathleen Ferguson reporting there. On the New South Wales-Liverpool Plains, farmers are concerned the oil and gas company Santos is a step closer to building its controversial Hunter Gas Pipeline project after a surprise land purchase. It's been revealed that the directors of the private company negotiating land access for the gas project recently bought a property that cuts through the pipeline route and has done a deal with Santos, as Nathan Morris reports. Farmer Margaret Fleck remembers being called after white surveyor's pegs were spotted on a property near Corindai in northwest New South Wales. We first uh, were sent images by a local landholder that had noticed some pegs. Some of these pegs are very close to the road and it was quite clearly written Hunter Gas Laydown. The property intersects the route of Santos's proposed 833-kilometre Hunter Gas pipeline, which connects the port of Newcastle to the Queensland gas fields. The 20-hectare rural block was sold in April and after a public record search, Miss Fleck discovered it was bought by a newly registered company called Palubi Property Holdings. The names of the company's directors were familiar, so she did some more digging. We established that the owners of this company were in fact the director and managing director of the land access agents that Santos are using trying to establish agreements with landholders to survey for the pipeline. The directors of Palubi Property Holdings are also the directors of Land Access Management Services, a company that's been working for Santos on its Hunter Gas Pipeline project. I think that the company had inside knowledge from Santos. They saw the opportunity, given the uh, landholder opposition that they're aware of. There's nothing illegal about the purchase. And there's nothing to stop anyone, including agents of Santos, from buying land in the area and allowing Santos access to the property. AM has contacted the directors of Palubi Property Holdings, and they have directed questions to Santos. A Santos spokesperson says the property was bought from a willing seller who was aware of the proposed use of the property. They say Santos has a commercial lease agreement with the purchaser to use the property for approved activities. Santos's current approval is due to run out in a year if it has not physically commenced work by October 2024. Now, a department spokesperson says that the development of laydown yards will trigger physical commencement of the project. We're still unsure of the significance of that recent purchase. Jamila Hallinan is a lawyer with the Environmental Defender's Office. We know that Santos is facing near-universal landholder opposition to its plans for the pipeline. So having a friendly or supportive landholder in the area to deal with would certainly help Santos in some way. Peter Get farms and runs cattle on a property near Santos's Narrabri Gap project. 
He hosts a number of coal seam gas wells on his land and says his dealings with Santos have always been fair and reasonable. I look at the benefit of the whole area, like the business in town, they get a lot of business out of it, pumps and spare parts, labour. Along the proposed Hunter Gas Pipeline route, some landholders are concerned about impacts like ground subsidence and erosion. But Mr Get says he's had gas pipelines and other infrastructure on his farm for years and has never had any problems. Is that many pipelines running here, there and everywhere all over Australia and sort of no one seems to worry too much about it and all of a sudden there's gas. Yeah, they're all up in arms over it. Narrabrite farmer Peter Get ending Nathan Morris's report. If you have solar panels and a battery and live in New South Wales or regional Queensland, your power bill this financial year could cost you nothing, according to new estimates from the Federal Department of Climate Change and Energy. The figures show even for households with just solar panels, power bills will be hundreds of dollars less than those without rooftop solar. But the forecasts have also sparked renewed calls for more assistance to help renters access solar power. Here's political reporter Evelyn Manfield. As inflation in the September quarter rose and the big four banks tip a rate rise next month, Energy Minister Chris Bowen is keen to share some good news for those with solar panels and batteries. The more solar our grid has in the system, uh, then the cheaper prices will be because the sun just doesn't send a bill. Figures from the Department of Climate Change and Energy estimate this financial year, households with rooftop solar in Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland and South Australia will have power bills between 39 and 57% cheaper than those without. If you have a, a battery, uh, that saving shoots up to between 75 and 100%. According to the estimates, with an 8.5 kilowatt hour battery, Victorians could save 75%, those in southeast Queensland, 96 and 99% in South Australia, again in comparison to households without solar. Those in New South Wales and regional Queensland could pay nothing for power. The simple message is this, solar saves money. It's really that simple. That's Wayne Smith from the Smart Energy Council. An average battery system in Australia is about 10 kilowatt hours and it'll cost around about $10,000. But what we're finding is that people are getting their money back incredibly quickly. The price of solar is absolutely plummeting and the price of batteries continue to down. Solar power clearly makes financial sense, but what troubles some renewable energy advocates is uptake is often in higher income households. Tristan Edis from Green Energy Markets says the federal and state and territory governments need to do more to help renters. It's not unreasonable to ask those landlords to say, look, can you please meet a minimum standard for the energy efficiency of the properties that you rent out? And that might mean upgrading to a solar system. It might mean insulation. It's just completely unreasonable that the most vulnerable members of the community struggle to pay their electricity bill because their landlord doesn't put in place basic minimum energy efficiency equipment. What Wayne Smith from the Smart Energy Council has is an idea. We really think there's a need to allow landlords to access what are called instant asset write-offs to allow people to install solar, heat pumps and energy-efficient appliances. Our analysis is that 
if you allow landlords to access instant asset write-offs for these products, you could actually reduce energy bills for renters by up to $1,600 a year. Chris Bowen says for now the government is focused on community solar systems. We already announced it for Victoria and we'll soon announce it for other states and territories and that's designed to help apartment dwellers and renters as well. The Federal Energy Minister Chris Bowen ending that report by Evelyn Manfield and that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Friday the 27th of October. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. How did Taylor Swift become so influential she can change the GDP of the city she visits? Today, Director of the Music Industry Program at the University of Miami, Serona Elton. What's fueling Swift mania and whether she's become just too big? Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.